You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tim Starks. I'm the author of the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter here at the Washington Post. Today, we're going to have two segments on cybersecurity and the economy. Later, we'll be joined by Congressman Jim Langevin. He's a Democrat of Rhode Island and the co-founder of the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus. But first, we're going to be joined by Dmitry Alperovich. He is the coach, uh, the co-founder, uh, the founder of the Silverado, Silverado, Silverado Policy Accelerator. Before that, he had been the co-founder of uh, the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike. Uh, Dmitry Alperovich, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much, Tim. It's a lot, lot for us to discuss, so, so let's get started. We've seen Russia escalating uh, its war in Ukraine with some attacks in Kiev, with some attacks on critical uh, infrastructure there, uh, particularly uh, energy facilities. Do you expect Russia to also uh, simultaneously escalate its uh, cyber ambitions in in Ukraine? You know, I don't think that they're going to dramatically increase the rate of cyber attacks in Ukraine because, frankly, they've been uh, targeting Ukraine at a pretty high clip of uh, high high ratio of of attack um, tempo. Uh, since the war began. Uh, but what I do think we're about to enter is probably one of the most dangerous uh, times that we've had uh, in, in the history of the cyber domain uh, when it comes to our infrastructure here in the West, both because of what Russia may be doing against us as well as China, where uh, we are both uh, simultaneously entering a time of confrontation with both countries. And when it comes to Russia, what is clear now is that Putin is steadily escalating this conflict not just vis-a-vis Ukraine and committing war crimes by targeting civilians and destroying their critical infrastructure, but also vis-a-vis the West. Um, if um, it uh, is proven that Russia was behind the destruction of the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines uh, that provide uh, provided gas to Europe, um, that is a very ominous sign that they're willing to um, directly attack infrastructure that uh, could have potentially uh, been of use down the road um, to the West. And I think it shows that as he's uh, escalating his rhetoric, uh, including the use of nuclear threats, as he's mobilizing the Russian public, he may be willing to target the West, and cyber probably is going to be his first weapon of choice. That's what I was just about to ask you about, in fact. Um, we have not seen a whole lot uh, in terms of Russian attacks during this period on, on, on the U.S. And, and cyberspace. We did see some pro-Russian hackers recently take credit for knocking down some airport websites in the U.S. Have you been surprised that that not much has happened? And what do you think it would take for something for Russia to escalate in cyberspace with the U.S.? I have. You know, one of the things that surprised me since the war began is how little we have seen in terms of Russian retaliation vis-a-vis the West, both in the cyber domain and even economically. Uh, Remember that Russia supplies not just energy to Europe, but uh, also lots of critical materials, everything from aluminum and nickel and uranium and titanium that is used uh, in many of our industries. They have not uh, worked hard to to cut that off uh, so far. And uh, obviously, they have not targeted our infrastructure through cyber attacks either, uh, despite these uh, really aggressive sanctions that we have put on Russia uh, in response to their invasion of Ukraine. So um, I do think that we are entering a new phase of the conflict, though, where Putin is starting to realize that the war is not going well for him, and uh, he's steadily losing territory, including territory that he has recently tried to annex. And uh, that may mean that uh, he's going to be much more willing to confront not just Ukraine, but also the West, who he believes 
wrongly, of course, but he believes are controlling Zelensky are, and are controlling this conflict. With those geopolitical dynamics in mind, kind of a three-part question, what, what kind of attacks do you think Russia would be capable of pulling off against the United States? What are, what are perhaps the most probable kind and what, what kind of attacks would you expect to get the most bang for their buck if they were to carry them out? Well, they're very much obsessed with energy. They, you know, if you look at their rhetoric, if you re look at the rhetoric of uh, the CEO of Gazprom, uh, Alexei Miller, um, they talk about Europe freezing this winter. And um, um, of course, they are, are doing their part to help that by cutting off the Nord Stream 1 pipeline that was providing gas to Europe uh, by claiming that uh, their, uh, um, their turbines uh, have all magically uh, gone out of service in the last couple of months. Uh, but, um, you know, they may also engage in cyber attacks to try to target the LNG facilities um, that are absolutely critical in compensating for the um, uh, lost Russian gas uh, that the Europeans are now receiving from other parts of the world. They may be targeting storage facilities. So um, they may be looking to wait for ways to increase the pressure on Europe specifically and perhaps even on the United States and drive further prices. They were very much obsessed when we had uh, gas prices at $7 a gallon in some parts of the country early in the summer that was making headlines all over Russian media, state-sponsored media, uh, uh, state-controlled media, I should say. And um, they may be looking for ways to drive that further. Um, they, of course, noticed that uh, when uh, one of the Russian-based ransomware groups attacked the Colonial Pipeline uh, last year, um, that that caused shortages uh, and, and uh, long lines on the East Coast. Um, so that may be a blueprint that they may try to replicate going forward. Right. You mentioned uh, U.S. sanctions earlier. I wanted to come back to that. What kind of impact do you think the U.S. sanctions have had on Russia's approach in cyberspace, uh, its strategy, its ambitions, its goals? I don't think it has. Uh, obviously, the uh, sanctions are crippling their financial sector and disconnecting it from the rest of the world. Um, and probably the most impactful uh, measures that we have taken on the economic front has been the use of, of the so-called foreign product direct rule, which is actually not a sanction, but an export control measure that prevents the export of semiconductors into Russia. That is crippling their industry. Semiconductors, of course, are essential to uh, virtually every means of modern production these days, from military equipment to uh, cars and microwaves and air conditioners and the like. And, um, and electronics. And uh, uh, Russia has had a hard time importing chips. Um, they're not completely cut off. They're still getting it from other sources, including China. They're able to reuse uh, chips from e-waste. Uh, so, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of uh, uh, washer and dryers uh, in Ukraine being stolen by Russian troops. Uh, it's not because there are no washers and dryers in Russia and, and they need to bring them back home. It's because, uh, a lot of that equipment has valuable chips that you can reuse, including in military equipment. So given those limitations, I want to talk about what kind of deterrence you think could work. Back in April, for The Post, you wrote, uh, the most effective response would meet two potentially conflicting objectives, deterring further attacks, but not pushing the United States and Russia into an escalatory spiral that would lead to a hot war between the world's two largest nuclear powers. So what does that look like in practice? So what we try to articulate is a strategy uh, for a potential destructive cyber attacks. And of course, we'll have to see whether the attacks that they launch are impactful or not. If they're 
sort of nuisance types of attacks like what we saw uh, from this group um, uh, against the airline uh, industry, um, that really does not, in my opinion, deserve, deserve much of a response. Um, it doesn't really have much of an impact and, and, and we should not be risking escalation over that. But if there's something that's truly destructive uh, or disruptive to our economy, that's a different matter entirely. But instead of getting into a tit for tat in cyber with Russia, because obviously they can hit us back in many ways a lot harder than we can hit them because they're gonna be unconstrained uh, by the rules of war. As we're already seeing that, of course, in Ukraine, they're gonna target our hospitals, they're gonna do things to us that we would never do to them. Um, and uh, the best way to do that is to demonstrate our ability to actually take them offline and to, as a, as a show of force, if you will, uh, to do uh, a demonstration where we could take their internet offline for 30 minutes or an hour uh, that wouldn't cause uh, significant impact to them, but would show them what we are capable of if they don't stop this activity. It sounds like you were starting to get into a little bit of what I was about to ask you next, in fact, which is at what point would, would you advocate for the U.S. to get more aggressive on offense in cyberspace? It sounds like you were talking about an, a, a big economic impact. Are there other sort of triggers that you would look at? Well, I think you, you have to look at cyber in the context of the overall conflict and what you're trying to achieve. Cyber is a means to an end. And at the end of the day, uh, unless you tie it with other measures, whether it's kinetic uh, weaponry or it's uh, economic measures, uh, you're not gonna have much of an effect. So even if you look at the most effective cyber attacks, arguably in history. Uh, I believe it was the Russian hack of Viasat that occurred on uh, February 24th when they were able to shut down satellite communications across Ukraine uh, via cyber attack. If they had only just done that cyber attack, it wouldn't have had a whole lot of impact, but it was uh, uh, done in conjunction with kinetic action, with jamming action uh, for other uh, communications channels that the Ukraine were using. was using, and as a result, you had uh, as Ukrainians themselves are reporting, near complete blackout of communications on the front lines, just as Russia was invading their country. So um, that shows you how cyber can be very effective, but only if it's coordinated with other um, attacks and, and uh, 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 actions across other domains. So we have to be very thoughtful about what we're trying to achieve, what signal we're trying to send, and uh, how, we, how cyber can or maybe not uh, play a role into that. It, bringing that Viasat hack up is is interesting to me because we, we have seen Ukraine, uh, after some initial discussion of, of how effective that was, simply kind of walk back how effective they thought it was. Is that spin from them or or or, or has that been a reevaluation uh, that, that others would agree with? Yeah, I mean, uh, you have to remember what happened a few days later, which is that Elon Musk has uh, had come to their rescue and provided Starlink, which has become absolutely essential. Uh, to their communications. So yes, in the overall scheme of things, they were able to recover quickly because of, uh, in part, the help provided by SpaceX. But there's no question that in those initial days, they were um, uh, severely impacted by both that hack and other measures that the Russians were taking. We now know that there was quite a bit of electronic warfare that the Russians were conducting, um, jamming operations, et cetera, that were quite effective. You mentioned Russia's uh willingness to go a little further than the U.S. would. There, there is, you know, by, by some consensus, a, a, a general lack of, of, of consensus on uh, the gray areas of, of cyber norms. And I'm wondering if you think that that lack of, of real institutional cyber norms has, has given Russia more impunity to operate. 
Well, I actually disagree with the premise of your question. There's actually quite a bit of consensus on cyber norms. In fact, you had a so-called uh, group of 20 UN experts, major countries like China, Russia, and uh, the United States come together and articulate norms uh, of responsible cyber behavior a few years ago. It was then approved by the UN General Assembly. Um, the issue is not that we lack norms. The issue is that we lack enforcement of norms. So when those norms are violated, nothing tends to happen, particularly to great powers. And that's, of course, not just a problem in cyber, it's a problem in the physical world as well, as we're witnessing in this conflict in Ukraine, where the Russians are committing all sorts of horrible atrocities, uh, torture, rape, and murder, and um, they're getting away with it, uh, uh, so far at least. Okay, I see that, I see that distinction you're raising. The, let's, can we turn to China for a little bit? Um, you have recently discussed President Biden's uh, export measures against the Chinese semiconductor agency, uh, sorry, semiconductor industry. You've talked about that being an act, of, uh, an act uh, a declaration of economic war. Why is that such an important step? And, and what do you expect China's response to be? Will it move from, from just an economic response to include cyberspace, especially as it pertains to China's historical theft of intellectual property? This is absolutely a huge action and, and completely unprecedented one at that. We're no longer targeting just individual companies. Of course, in the past, we have targeted companies like Huawei and ZT in the telecommunications sector and prevented them from importing U.S. technology or US, uh, technology with U.S. intellectual property, like semiconductors that have this had crippling effects on, on a company like Huawei. Um, but this is now targeting the entire sector. And it is not only about preventing them from accessing advanced technology, including equipment uh, that they would need to manufacture their own chips, it is also preventing them from access uh, to U.S. talents. So any U.S. permanent resident or citizen uh, or anyone actually living in the United States uh, is prevented from working with uh, uh, a huge number of Chinese uh, companies and universities and research facilities uh, on anything related to semiconductors. And uh, that is going to have huge effects on China because you have a lot of um, expats, uh, American citizens that are currently working in the Chinese sector. You have a lot of Taiwanese citizens that hold U.S. passport, dual, dual citizenship with the U.S., have U.S. passports, also working in China. Um, all of those people are either going to have to give up U.S. citizenship, which I don't doubt they will do, um, or uh, leave that industry um, at the risk of prosecution under U.S. law. So um, this is, uh, I believe, a declaration of economic war. It is absolutely going to basically crush Xi Jinping's plans uh, to achieve uh, chip independence by 2025, a key goal that he has had for more than a decade now, and um, uh, is going to absolutely um, destroy their efforts at uh, um, advancing their advanced technology industry uh, over the coming decade. Um, I doubt that they'll take it sitting down. Of course, they're preoccupied this week with the uh, party Congress, and I don't think that there is going to be any retaliation in the near term. But uh, once they get past uh, the Congress and, and the changes that Xi Jinping is implementing within the party, I think you will see retaliation both against American companies in China, um, as well as uh, potentially through cyber operations to try to compensate for the loss of access to technology uh, with IP theft. I don't think it's going to be enough, uh, but they're, they're going to keep trying. I know you've paid close attention to what's happening between China and Taiwan right now. What role do you expect 
cyber might play war China to invade Iran, sorry, invade Taiwan. If you know, and I know it's not something that might not happen in the near future from from what I've read from your comments. But what role do you think it would play if, if it did come to that? Well, I think cyber can play a role in preparing the battlefield. So China, unlike Russia, is convinced that it has potential to take Taiwan without firing a shot. I think they're completely wrong on that, but they may try to use uh, propaganda and disinformation, uh, including the cyber domain, to try to convince the population that if war is coming, their best choice is to stop resisting and to um, acquiesce and, and join China. Um, they may also use cyber to try to cut off communications uh, if, if that initial if, uh, effort fails and if they've actually decided to, to go to war. And you know the unique vulnerability that Taiwan has, unlike Ukraine, is that it's an island. Um, there is no connection to the outside world except through undersea, water ca uh, undersea cables that are supplying uh, much of the communications currently to the island. Those cables could be cut. It is within the power of China to do so. Uh, if it launches an invasion, um, it can use jamming to try to uh, block radio and satellite communications with the outside world. Cyber also will play a role in that, and as we've seen in Ukraine. Uh, and um, that is uh, one of the biggest problems that the Taiwanese are going to have. If you look at what Ukraine has done so incredibly well since this invasion began, is they were able to communicate with the outside world. They were able to showcase uh, the pain that their population is suffering. They were able to galvanize the world opinion uh, to their side. Uh, President Zelensky is putting out videos every single night that are watched by millions of people around the world. If Taiwan is cut off from uh, the outside world, um, it, it will not be able to do that, of course, and that may make uh, China's uh, job much, much easier. So this will probably be our last question. Um, looking more, more generally, uh, is there a kind of attack that you think U.S. companies and the, the U.S. economy might be least prepared for right now? Well, any type of disruptive attack that targets our financial sector, targets our energy sector, um, of course, is going to be impactful. But the one thing to remember, and, and the one thing that the Ukraine conflict shows uniquely well, is that uh, no cyber attack uh, is likely to have long-lasting impact. There's always workarounds, and you know, even as we've talked with Viasat, there was a workaround with Starlink, uh, being able to provide service. Uh, we're going to get through this. It, it may be painful uh, for a few days, but um, ultimately, the, the good thing about cyber is that it rarely causes uh, physical destruction. It is possible in a few uh, occasions, particularly in the um, operational technology side, if you're targeting turbines and if you're targeting electric substations. Uh, but outside of that, uh, you can always rebuild. You can always, if you have backups, um, restore from backups. And you know, even Colonial Pipeline was operational within a few days. So um, that's, that's the nice thing about cyber is that the effects are rarely permanent. Yeah, I know there's been some alarming discussions we've had here, but that's a good uh, positive note to end on on on, on what, what is not as dangerous. Uh, we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, I, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Dimitri. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, so up next, we're going to hear from Congressman Jim Langevin. Uh, but first, a video. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor.
The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi there, I'm Suzanne Kelly, CEO and publisher of The Cypher Brief, a national security-focused media publication. We talk a lot at The Cypher Brief about cybersecurity, and today we're going to talk about the intersection of digital innovation and cybersecurity. And joining me to talk about this is Ivan Sheffrin. He is Executive Director of Managed Security Services at Comcast Business. Ivan, thanks for being here. Good morning, Suzanne, and happy Cybersecurity Month. It's great to be here. Yep, I agree. You know, everyone in the business community is talking so much about digital innovation and the benefits of it, but what they're talking a little bit less about is are the inherent cybersecurity risks that come with that innovation. So I thought I might ask you first off this, this morning, Ivan, how should businesses be thinking about managing the risk that comes with innovation? That's a great question, Suzanne. So digital transformation at the end of the day allows us to go faster, bring new products and features and services to our customers or constituents and stakeholders. Uh, but in a in terms of cybersecurity, that comes at a slight cost, which is the risk of complexity. Complexity ends up being sort of the enemy of cybersecurity because we don't always know, and it's not always easy to identify who has access to our crown jewel data and who's processing that data. We buy services uh, that allow us to go faster from companies uh, in public cloud providers, for example. Um, but there are four main ways that hackers get into our systems to steal or destroy data, and that's credentials, credential theft, phishing, uh, vulnerabilities or exploiting vulnerabilities in software bugs, and then botnets of compromised computers on the internet worldwide. So as business and government transform and digitize their organizations, it's equally important to build in ways to prevent and detect threats from those four main ways that companies uh, get attacked. And Ivan, you know, hybrid work, I think we all know, has really accelerated the adoption of cloud-based technologies. How does that present a whole different set of cybersecurity challenges? And then more importantly, how are enterprises adapting to that? That's a great question. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, hybrid work means people working from home or offices that really aren't protected by the standard cybersecurity controls that we're mostly used to in the office, um, whether it's a small business, mid-sized business, or large enterprise. Uh, so one of the fundamental uh, way or pillars of cybersecurity is network security, of course, uh, along with application security and user security and email security, network security is a pretty critical component. Uh, to make sure that the bad guys don't get in. And of course, when you're working from home, you're using your home network and it's not ever going to be secured uh, as well as the corporate network that you used to at work. So we have to, instead of just using remote access technology to VPN to our, VPN into our company environment, we've got to make sure that's secured and that the traffic is also inspected. Hope that answers your question. It does, um, and it leads to another one, funny enough. We've seen <laughs> such a growth of network-connected devices, as you were talking about, particularly with employees having their own devices, the Internet of Things. How are these presenting new challenges? 
That's a great question, too. So it kind of goes back to my first answer, which is complexity is a challenge for cybersecurity. So uh, when those devices are manufactured and built, um, it's very difficult to understand the risk involved because we don't know always who built them. We kind of have to take a leap of faith and trust that the firmware and software running on those devices, which may or may not be managed devices, um, allow us to do our work securely. Uh, many of those devices often contain vulnerabilities and it's up to the user themselves to patch those vulnerabilities and keep the software up to the date, up to date. And many of the devices, it's just not possible to uh, update them. In fact, if it's some, you know, IoT device or a smart refrigerator, you know, the, the ones that aren't as good just don't have that kind of security built in. So it means that we have to educate our users to keep our systems updated or keep their own personal systems updated and transfer some of that cybersecurity risk uh, out to our user base. And of course, users are the most vulnerable population and um, uh, of all. So uh, th th that's a challenge with uh, uh, remote work and hybrid work. Yeah, one of many challenges, I agree. Ivan, last question for today. How can business leaders be thinking more holistically, really, about digital growth and cybersecurity strategies? Yeah, that's a great question, too. So, you know, digital business allows us to roll new and innovative features out much more quickly than ever before, right? We can, uh, we, we can serve business, lower cost, increase revenue, and so forth through digital transformation and, and innovation. But it's in, really important when rolling out these new technologies, not just to consider the feature itself, but also the infrastructure on which they run. And good security not uh, involves not only the technology, but also the people in process. So we call this in cybersecurity, we call this shifting left, right? And building security in from the start, not just on the technologies, uh, not just on the third party systems that we depend on, but also the people and the processes on which they all depend. I'm going to remember that phrase shifting left because this is something that every business out there right now is thinking about and trying to plan for for the future. Ivan Sheffrin, Executive Director and Managed Security Services at Comcast Business. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Suzanne. It was my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. And now back to our colleagues at The Washington Post. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Welcome back, or if you're just joining us, welcome to Washington Post Live. I am Tim Starks. I'm the Cybersecurity 202 uh, author here at the Washington Post. I'm now joined by Congressman Jim Langevin. He is a Democrat from Rhode Island. He is also the co-founder of the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus. Representative Langevin, welcome. Jim, great to be with you. Same. Uh, I, I know we just saw a little bit from you in Russia in that video, uh, and we were just talking about it with Dimitri as well. Can we talk about what you're seeing from Russia in terms of its capabilities, its its goals, its strategies, uh, and, and how that might have evolved since the invasion of Ukraine? Sure. Well, we know that cyber threats still uh, remain uh, a significant challenge. Uh, what we haven't seen is the uh, the the massive cyber attacks that perhaps we 
had expected or the blowback here against the United States uh, that, that, uh, that could have happened because of our involvement within support uh, of Ukraine and the, the work we've done that President Biden has done to really rally the international community behind uh, Ukraine. But we can't let our guard down. We know that, uh, that cyber uh, is still a, a significant threat, uh, both to businesses, uh, to our economy, and to our national security. And that's why I'm so pleased that CISA has been so forward-leaning under the direction of Director Jen Easterly with his Shields Up program. Uh, constant reminder to businesses that we need to be vigilant and really have Shields Up and be ready. More broadly, can you talk about the need for international rules of the road uh, on cybersecurity? Yeah, international rules of the road are, are really important, especially among uh, partners and allies, and then joining together and being willing to re respond when uh, when bad actors violate those those norms. So think about uh, the idea of not attacking another nation's critical infrastructure in in peacetime. Uh, or our financial system and those types of things. Uh, beyond that, if, you know, if nation states uh, or uh, proxies uh, do violate those norms, we need to be ready to uh, use all source intelligence to identify uh, those, those violations, call out the bad actors, and then shorten the timeline between identifying the bad actor and the punishment consequence that would result from those actions. So. It, it takes close coordination and communication with partners and allies, but uh, calling out bad actors and then punishing them appropriately when they uh, when they violate those norms is a critical uh, part of that effort. Do you have thoughts on what you think those norms should look like? What they should actually be? Sure. Well, as I, I identified a couple of them already, not attacking a, a another country in times of uh, in in, in peacetime. Uh, of course, the situation. In Iraq, in, in Afghanistan, in uh, Ukraine, right now is clearly a a, uh, a a war situation. We are trying to uh, walk a very fine line. President Biden, especially, trying to walk a fine line between uh, supporting uh, the, the country of Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, and I admire their courage. We are grateful for their their certain their resilience, uh, but at the same time, not going so far as to get the United States uh, into a war uh, with Russia. So uh, we need to make sure that uh, we uh, continue to support uh, all efforts to uh, build up our resilience here at home and that of our, our partners and allies, uh, but uh, recognizing that uh, you know, we could face a significant, significant challenge in the cyber realm going forward. We did recently hear from uh, Albania's prime minister in response to uh, a cyber attack from I Iran that he would have he contemplated in, invoking Article Five, uh, NATO's Article Five. That's the principle of collective defense. When or if do you think that should ever be invoked for a cyber attack? Yeah, it's a good question, Tim. And I, I would say in in those areas where uh, there is uh, the loss of life or there is a, a disruption, uh, destruction of uh, national critical functions and to critical infrastructure, I think that would constitute a, an Article 5 violation. You know, this is always, of course, uh, subject to interpretation, but when you specifically see uh, significant damage or, or loss of life, that's when the red line has been crossed.
Right. The, the, the next question I have for you is, who is it that you think uh, poses the greatest threat to the United States in cyberspace right now? And, and, and where do you think we're most vulnerable? Sure. Well, no shortage of, of bad actors or their proxies, but clearly uh, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea are, are among the, the, the top four of the, uh, the bad actors out there that we, we have to worry about. Um, Russia has significant cyber capabilities uh, and it could uh, use them against us uh, or our allies. Uh, they, we haven't seen, as I said earlier, that level of cyber uh, action or uh, cyber attacks that we had expected. But we're not out of the woods. I've said that uh, many times before. But I would say one of the, the biggest threats to our economy comes from, from China. Uh, China uses uh, cyber uh, not only for uh, espionage, but also uh, for theft of intellectual property. Uh, Director Ray has identified uh, China as the biggest threat to our economy because of the uh, intellectual property that they're stealing uh, to the tune of probably trillions of dollars. And that leads to lost productivity, it costs American jobs, and, uh, and uh, China has uh, been unfortunately relatively unrestrained. And uh, I think that's an area we need to work harder to, to push back on China and their, and their malicious cyber activity. But uh, the Iranians also play a, a, a role in, uh, in cyber uh, operations. And uh, we've, we've seen that in uh, Montenegro and Albania, as you, as you mentioned just recently. Yeah, speaking of China, some colleagues and I recently reported about FBI warnings to state political party headquarters uh, in various states about Chinese scanning uh, of those of those targets. At the same time, we've also heard from the administration that that they are there are no specific or credible threats to the midterms right now. Can you talk about what what fears or or, or lack thereof you have about threats to the election infrastructure right now? Yeah, look, great question there, and something that uh, should concern all of us. And again, why we need to double down on our vigilance, making sure that our our election systems. Uh, and election equipment is protected. Uh, they right now uh, uh, are priority customers, if you will, with, with CISA. And I know CISA is working uh, very closely with state uh, and local governments to make sure that uh, whatever resources the federal government can bring to bear to assist and and shoring up those, those defenses and the security of election systems uh, and equipment, uh, we are doing that. I know that the administration has an all hands on deck approach uh, right now with uh, monitoring and uh, watching out for bad actors trying to interfere with our elections. But um, e even the idea of, uh, of uh, clo closing doubt uh, about the integrity of election uh, could have uh, severe consequences. And so that's why we need to be ever vigilant. And I'm pleased that the steps that have been taken within the administration, uh, CIS in particular, to make sure that those, uh, those efforts are robust and working with state and locals to protect it and shore up our election systems. We're now gonna go to a question from our audience. Uh, Jay Tanner asks, how does Congress plan to support municipalities and smaller units of local government, many of which have extremely tight budgets in the ongoing cybersecurity conversation? Is there a role for public-private partnerships in this space? Yes, there's absolutely a role for public-private partnerships. Um, 
we have provided uh, some resources to uh, state, local, uh, territorial, and tribal governments uh, for building resilience. And I'd like to see more done as we encourage uh, states and municipalities to migrate data to the cloud and, uh, and where there can be stronger cybersecurity efforts, leaving cyber uh, security efforts to those who are really good at it. Uh, you know, look, the uh, state and local governments will never have the resources to be able to uh, protect against a pushback, a, a nation state intrusion or attack. Uh, we can buy down the risk of, of state and locals by, again, migrating data to the cloud, providing uh, cloud security companies to do what, what they do best. I think it's a, a, a partnership that we need to encourage. But the federal government has a strong role to play. I know we provided some resources already, but we're going to need to do more because we're uh, we're not meeting the, uh, the the need of what state and locals really need for resources to be able to accomplish that goal. Over the time you've been in Congress, uh, as your career here is winding down, I, you've been definitively one of the most uh, authoritative voices on on cyber. Can you talk about how Congress has evolved on that issue over your time? Sure. Uh, well, I, I can tell you that uh, the awareness level has been raised uh, significantly, um, and we recognize that uh, it's a it's an ongoing threat. I've often said that cybersecurity is never a, a problem that we're going to be able to solve, but we can buy down our risk to something that is much more manageable. Uh, I, I say the big game changer on on uh, cybersecurity and Congress's uh, the ability of, and the willingness of Congress to act came as a result of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. I was proud to be one of the commissioners oh, on okay. that uh, that commission that was co-chaired by Senator Angus King and, uh, and Congressman Mike Gallagher. Uh, and it, it, it was a truly nonpartisan, bipartisan commission where we just all rolled up our sleeves and, and did the hard work to come up with a an overarching strategy to better protect the United States against cyber attacks of significant consequence as a result of our efforts, there were some 80 recommendations that uh, that were produced. We were able to change, put many of those recommendations into uh, legislative form and get them enacted, significant number of over um, uh, 27 or so now. And, and I believe we're on track to do even more in this, uh, in this uh, next uh, National Defense Authorization Act, where we see many of those provisions included. So uh, Congress has done more, and in terms of funding, per se, shoring up CISA, which is vitally important, uh, we need to make sure that that is, that that is the, the country's premier cybersecurity agency for protecting the .gov network and being a partner with the, uh, the, the, the private sector. Again, we need to continue to grow that partnership because the public-private partnership is essential. Government cannot do this on its own. Uh, private sector can uh, do it on, on its own. We need to be a, a stronger partner uh, with the private sector and bringing resources to bear wherever possible. But the, the, the Congress has done a lot in terms of raising its, its own awareness and, and providing funding to government agencies as well as state and local governments. But uh, it's an ongoing effort. We can't let up now. What would be the top thing Congress could do, do you think, uh, to tackle the, the, the difficult problem of, of the, the big cybersecurity workforce gap that we're seeing? Yeah, great question there. And that's something that I have often uh, tried to champion and, and call attention to, 
the fact that we are woefully under-resourced right now in, in our workforce. And uh, you, we can have all the, the, the right policies in place, but if we don't have the people to implement them, uh, we're still not effectively protecting the country in cyberspace. So we need to encourage more uh, people to go into the field of cybersecurity. We need to recognize that it doesn't always mean that uh, you need a four-year, traditional four-year degree at a college or university. In cyber, it could be something uh, akin to uh, a, a, a two-year uh, cyber degree at a community, from a community college or even a certificate program to help someone get their foot in the door to a meaningful career in cybersecurity, that good paying job and providing important service to the country or to state and local governments uh, or in the private sector. So on the government side, we have the Cyber Corps program, uh, which I've been a, a, a huge champion of uh, because it's a scholarship for service program. Uh, it helps pay for the tuition of uh, those who are going into this field while they're in college. And then when they come out, they agree to serve in, in federal, state, or local government uh, for a period of two years uh, to pay back their, uh, their service. In the meantime, when they're in school, not only is their tuition paid for, but they're getting a stipend of over $30,000 a year. So it's a great program that I, I, I've been trying to expand. We have met with some success, but we need to continue to grow that program and also look to other efforts, especially the high school level and, and uh, encouraging our young people, who, by the way, are digital natives growing up uh, understanding technology better than probably you know any of us ever will because we are learning about it where they're living it and uh, we need to harness that that talent the skill and uh, encourage them to put those skills to use in in the field of cybersecurity. I know one thing you've been working hard to get across the finish line here this year is the concept of uh, systemically important critical infrastructure. This is uh, the idea of. Finding, finding these entities that are the, just the very most important uh, parts of the of the critical infrastructure and, and doing more to protect them. There has been some uh, pushback from industry on this. I wanted to see if you could explain why this is an important thing to get done and specifically what you might be doing to respond to the industry criticism. Sure. Well, I, I think industry is probably always you know, leery about uh, more requirements being put on them. Um, you know, I look at it more in terms of, you know, how can we better partner with industry and have greater situational awareness to understand what the systemic cyber threats are and, and how we can mitigate those, those threats uh, and, and share that information uh, more broadly, more effectively, and more quickly. So the idea of uh, these SIEs, systemically important uh, entities, uh, would basically start off with you know, what are the criteria of, of what qualifies as an SIE? I, I would argue that it's those companies that are mature enough to do something with the threat information that is given. And, and also it's those companies that if they were hit, that's not just uh, the, the company having a bad day as a, as a result of a cyber attack, but the country would have a bad day as a result of a cyber attack. And so, again, that's the kind of the criteria that we need to look at for, I believe, an SIE. I'd like to see some of the more specifics in terms of you know what qualifies or what companies would uh, would constitute a, a, a being an SIE. But then we also need to have some additional requirements, kind of a new uh, social contract. That's why I think that a joint collaborative environment is so important. Um, creating a an entity that has a uh, basically common uh, operating tool set uh, for giving broader 
situation where we are just be able to share information uh, in real time, not just passing emails back and forth, but being able to actually see threat information and understanding that in context and being able to share it again in, in real time as opposed to you know, just uh, uh, passing emails back and forth. So uh, the SIE's joint collaborative environment, uh, the, of course the JCDC, um, making sure that we're doing effective cyber planning. Those are the things where I think government and industry can and should partner more closely together. What are your thoughts on the Biden administration's approach that seems to be a bit more regulatory than past administrations on, on some key sectors? Today we saw them talking about, uh, or I guess yesterday we saw them talking about uh, rail carriers and wanting to, to put more guidelines in place for them. Do you think that that's an appropriate approach? Sure, it, it, it's, a, it's a balance, right? In some, way, in some ways, it's always best that we have the public-private partnership and things are, are voluntary. Uh, with that fails, uh, legislation or uh, regulation might be appropriate. You know, I've often, you know, harkened back to, you know, why do we have the safest airline industry in the world? Well, you know, certainly, you know, airline companies want to get their passengers safely from point A to point B, but, you know, good intentions and, and hopes are only going to get you so far. And, and that's why you have, uh, you know, the FAA or the NTSB uh, that, that uh, does in some cases provide appropriate regulation. And, so where it's necessary, uh, certainly regulation uh, should be considered. And uh, but you know, always the front line should be the public-private partnership wherever possible, or incentives uh, wherever we can. But um, in some places, I, I, first of all, I, I applaud the Biden administration for their work in cyber. Uh, in all the years that I've been doing this, and I, I uh, have um, not been more impressed than what I am with the Biden administration and what they've done, uh, and that goes across uh, other administrations, Democrat or Republican administrations. Uh, the Biden administration has done more than any other. And we finally now have the right structure, uh, policies, and people in, in place uh, to do the job of effectively, uh, more effectively protecting the What's country that? in cyberspace. But again, we need, we need to continue to focus on the people because growing the workforce is really essential. By the way, I. Um, I'm pleased that Chris Inglis is on the job as our first national cyber director. It's a position that I worked for uh, over a decade to create. And finally, uh, Chris is in place and he's the quarterback for helping to coordinate our, our uh, cyber uh, defensive policies, especially. And uh, he's been a very effective voice in that role. We have to leave in just one moment. Should we expect to see you uh, working on cyber issues uh, after you leave Congress now? You know, I'm sure I will be involved in, in, in cyber issues in some way, shape or form. Uh, it, it's uh, it been the, the, the highlight of my career to have served in Congress for, for 22 years. And, uh, you know, it's certainly bittersweet as uh, the end of the year approaches. Uh, and I'm personally very proud of the, the role I played in, in cyber. It's one of those areas where not many people were doing it. And I was able to uh, grab onto this issue and uh, work in a bipartisan way with uh, colleagues, including uh, Mike McCall and and Mike Gallagher, uh, and people like Dutch Ruppersberger on our Democratic side, and and, uh, and and several others, to advance the cause, better protect the the country in cyberspace. So I'm sure that I'll be involved in cyber in some way, shape, or form. Uh, what that will be yet, I'm not I'm not sure, but uh, I'll always be at the ready to assist in any way I can. It's such an important issue, and again, not going away anytime soon. But uh, we've got to get this right. It's just it's too important to the country not to sure uh, people, continue to focus. I'm sure, on people, this. I'm sure people are glad to hear you say that. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us, Congressman Landerman.
Thank you, Tim. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.